I want to remind you of something that I would have spoken about in the time that I was here. I'm going to read just two verses from the book of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 3. And I want to read verse 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Most of you are familiar with the context of this. The serpent has enticed the man and the woman in the garden to sin and they've sinned and God is responding to that. And in his response, he looks Satan in the eye and he tells him what he's going to do. He says, you're going to be cursed above every creature, but more than that. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. And he will crush your head. It is the first prophetic declaration that God has a plan of redemption. Man has fallen in sin, but it's not being left that way. God is going to step into the situation. He's making an announcement there in the garden. Messiah will come. A champion is coming through the seed of the woman who is going to destroy the works of Satan. God might have done it in a corner. He might have kept his plan a secret. He might have been quiet about it, said nothing, but he doesn't. He looks Satan in the eye and he tells him, this is what I'm going to do. What I want to do is just to remind you that the record of Scripture demonstrates how Satan responds to hearing what the purpose of God is. So if you'll allow me for a few moments, the woman conceives a seed. She gives birth to a son and she calls him Cain. And then a little while later she gives birth to another son and calls him Abel. Satan understands that through the seed of a woman, God's champion is coming into the world. So he puts 
hatred between Cain and Abel. He sets the unrighteous brother against the righteous one. And God warns Cain about the danger of that. And he says, listen, sin is lurking at your door, Cain. You need to deal with the jealousy that's in your heart. Otherwise, it's going to end badly. Cain ignores the warnings of God. And eventually, he murders his righteous brother Abel. And I want to suggest to you, Satan rubs his hands in glee at the thought, the righteous seed is dead. Cain is banished to a far country. But here's what you read in Genesis 4 and verse 25. It says, Adam knew his wife again and she conceived and gave birth to another son. And she called him Seth saying, listen to these words, God has given me another seed in the place of Abel. The woman had heard the prophetic declaration through my seed, God sending a champion to destroy the works of Satan. And she recognizes that in Seth, not only has she got a son, but she has another seed. My late mother-in-law gave birth to 17 children. One of her sons died in the army. His name was Eddie. Eddie was about the eighth son. None of those that came after him replaced him. And Eve wasn't saying she had a replacement son. She had a replacement seed for the purpose of God. But you know what happens from the time of Seth being born. Satan then incites the hearts of men everywhere to increasing sin and wickedness to such a point that the violence of men becomes so significant that God says it repented him in his heart that he had ever made man. And so he determines to destroy every living creature off the face of the earth. Can you imagine how Satan thought at that point? Champion, seed coming from the woman. God's about to destroy every living thing. And the champion of God can never come. I've won. But as you read through the account, you know that in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was one man, one man and his family, and through that one man and his righteous family, God preserves his posterity on the earth. And through the flood, Noah and his family are saved, and God begins to carry on with his purpose through this family. And many of you know Abraham is chosen as the man through whom God will bring about a nation that brings the Messiah, the champion of God, the deliverer, the one who will crush Satan's head. He will come through the seed of Abraham. But there's a problem. 
Abraham's a 75-year-old man and he's married. And his wife's barren. She doesn't have the capacity to have children. And God waits almost 25 years till she's 90 years of age and not only is she barren, but she's actually past the age now of childbearing. This is doubly impossible. But just to make things really difficult, Abraham's 99, and we'll just leave it where the scripture calls it, he's as good as dead. It's triply impossible. Triply, I'm not sure if that's a word, but you can use it. And um, in spite of the fact that Abraham's as good as dead and she's past the age of childbearing, and it's impossible for her to conceive, God gives them the promised seed, Isaac. And the child of promise is born. And God demonstrates that when it's utterly impossible, he's still able to work his purpose out in the earth. And so Isaac in turn marries Rebekah. God does a miracle of the impossible again and she conceives. And the strangest thing happens because in the womb of Rebekah, Twins go to war with each other. Esau and Jacob are fighting before they're born. Is that just a biological abnormality? Or is it the fact that Satan understands through the seed of woman a champion is coming who is going to destroy me, crush my head. I am going to do everything I can to stop it from happening. And so Esau and Jacob live at war with each other throughout the course of their lives until Jacob steals his father's blessing on his father's deathbed. And Esau says these words, as soon as the time of mourning for my father is over, I will surely kill you. You know Jacob was the one who God had chosen to bring the righteous seed. God chose Jacob and not Esau, but Esau now is committed to killing Jacob is this just another dispute in a family or is it the continuous outworking of Satan trying to stop the purpose of God Jacob flees to a far country with the help of his mother stays away for 22 years but after 22 years God says to him go back he's not that keen how it's recorded in scripture, but because you said. But he's in terror for his life. Many of you are familiar with the scripture because it tells the story of Jacob splitting his family into two groups with this thought in mind. If Esau overtakes one group and kills them, perhaps the other 
might escape and be preserved. And he's trying to do what he can to protect his family from what he believes to be imminent death. He sent messengers ahead of him to find out, does Esau know I'm coming? Unfortunately, they come back with the news, yes, he knows. And he's coming to meet you. But he's not coming alone. He's bringing 400 men with him. You understand that's not a welcome party. He's bringing 400 men because he made a commitment 22 years ago that the next time he saw his brother, he would destroy him. And Jacob prays that night in fear of his life. He sends his family over the Jabbok in front of him. He comes back across the brook. And he cries out to God. And something supernatural happens. And the angel of the Lord wrestles with Jacob that night and does something incredible in Jacob's heart. But he didn't just do something incredible in Jacob's heart. He did something amazing in Esau's. Because the next day when Jacob saw his brother, Esau coming with 400 men doesn't kill him. He runs to him with his arms open, throws his arms around his brother and says, seeing you is like seeing the face of an angel. And God turns around a hatred in a moment. God turns around a family dispute just like that, that had been deep-seated in order to carry on with his purpose. Because that's the nature of God. You know, from the sons of Jacob, Joseph was the one who was chosen to save his family by a great deliverance. He's had a dream. It's a revelation from God about something that's going to happen in the future. But his brothers hate him. And now they hate him all the more. And so one day when Joseph is on his way out to meet his brothers, they make a decision, let's kill him. And they are going to kill him except Reuben intervenes. And says, let's not kill him, that's of no value to us. So they beat him up, they throw him in the pit. And then staggeringly, Reuben's not with them when the Ishmaelite caravan train comes. He's sold into slavery, goes through the whole process of being unjustly treated in part of his household, imprisoned. But eventually, that brings him to the palace. And interestingly enough, it's 22 years later one day when his brothers walk in. And Joseph finally reveals himself to them with these words. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God sent me ahead of you to save you by a great deliverance. If Joseph hadn't have been there, the family would have died in the famine. If the family had died in the famine, where would the righteous seed have gone? It would have been wiped out. But God had already made a way. So Joseph and his family are brought into Egypt. They are looked after there and they grow from a family into this incredible nation but as the account goes on, we read that their 
arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And he looked at the Hebrew people and the multiplication of them and he determined we need to do something about that. We're going to have to put them to death. So he says to the Egyptian midwives, I want you to put every male child to death on the birthing stool. Is that just a power-mad king trying to protect his own empire? Or can you see the hand of Satan behind this, trying to stop the righteous seed, God's champion, coming into the world? And the Egyptian midwives disobey. And so Pharaoh determines every male child must be drowned in the Nile. And so they go through a generation taking every single Hebrew male, the ones through whom the seed will come. And they drown them in the Nile. And that's going to stop the purpose of God. Except one couple look at their baby and they see that he's no ordinary child. And so they determine that they'll hide him in the house. And when he becomes too big to be hidden in the house any longer, they make a papyrus basket and they set him into the Nile. It's a great plan, but it doesn't last very long before the crying child is found. It apparently couldn't be worse. Because the person who has found this crying child is the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, that's torn it, hasn't it? He's definitely going to be destroyed now, except that's not what happens. Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses, God's deliverer for Egypt, into Pharaoh's palace. Moses sits at the table with Pharaoh. He eats at the table with Pharaoh. He's educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians in Pharaoh's palace. He's trained in the art of warfare in Pharaoh's palace. The man who is God's champion for that generation, Pharaoh's trying to destroy him and Pharaoh actually brings him up, looks after him because God will always fulfill his purpose in the earth. And so there's a time, you know the account very well, that Moses walks back into the palace many years later and says, God says, let my people go. And Israel is delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians by the miraculous intervention of God that we're so familiar with through the plagues, through the drying up of the Red Sea. And God chooses Judah to be the tribe through which he's going to bring Messiah into the world. For the sake of time and delicacy, there's a remarkable story about Onan, Judah's son, and his second son, Ur, and their failure to do what they should have done that would 
have led to the seed continuing, yet God again miraculously intervenes in the mess of humanity to make sure the line of Judah doesn't die out and continues. You can read the details of that for yourselves. But God chooses Judah, and you know from the tribe of Judah, David is chosen. And from the moment he's chosen, his life is under threat. Twice, Saul tries to spear him to the wall of the palace. Eventually, David, though he is Saul's most loyal subject, spends his life running from place to place. Saul has 3,000 of his best hand-picked warriors hunting David down to take his life and they're thwarted every single time they get close. David's own son Absalom turns against him and tries to destroy his life and fails. Is that just another story of a bad family situation of a grumpy king? No, it's Satan trying to stop the seed of God coming into the world. It happens with a queen called Athaliah. If you looked at 2 Kings chapter 11, you read this strange account. A man called Ahaziah is king. And Ahaziah dies and he has numerous sons. You would think his grand, their grandmother, Queen Athaliah, would be delighted that one of her grandsons is going to be king. But she determines that none of her grandsons will be king and she orders the execution of every one of her grandsons. What sort of a grandmother orders the execution of her grandsons? A woman whose heart is incited by Satan to try to stop the purpose of God? And they go systematically through the palace and they kill one grandchild after another. Yet remarkably, once again, there's a woman in the palace called Jehosheba. Jehosheba saves one of those grandsons from the line of Judah, Joash. And he's hidden for six years until eventually Athaliah is put to death. And the male seed of Judah continues with the purpose of God as God continually does. You read it in the story of Esther. What is it that possesses a man like Haman to get the king to make an edict that every single Hebrew on the planet would be exterminated? Yet that was the order that Artaxerxes signs for Haman. And the way in which God intervenes through a sleepless night on the part of the king and the reading of an annal that tells the story of how a man called Mordecai actually had saved the king. And the next day when Haman comes expecting Mordecai to be hanged on a gallows and every Hebrew person exterminated, God has already made a way. And once again, the people of Israel are delivered and the purpose of God is going forward. 
And I come to the New Testament and I'm reading that wise men are riding from the east. They're coming to worship the one who has been born King of the Jews. Apparently God's champion has come. The seed has finally arrived. And so these wise men come to Herod's palace. They ask about the King of the Jews. Herod is incensed. But he advises them, go to Bethlehem. But when you've been, Come back and tell me where he is so that I too might go and worship. The wise men are warned in a dream by God about a king that wants to destroy God's champion. Mary and Joseph are warned by God in a dream. And they flee into Egypt so that the life of Christ is preserved. While a king determines... That every male two years of age and under is put to death in that region because Satan wants to stop God's champion. And so Jesus grows up in relative obscurity, kept safe until one day John the Baptist looks up beyond the crowd and points behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and God's champion the seed that he had promised Satan in the garden would come is announced to the whole world and Jesus is baptized and the heavens open and Father says This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the world now knows this is the Christ. This is God's champion. But Satan immediately goes to work to try to stop the purpose of God being fulfilled. And so Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness and Satan goes and for 40 days... He tries to stop him from fulfilling the purpose of God and then leaves him for an opportune time. One of those occasions, Satan trying to stop the cross from happening. Satan didn't do the cross. Satan tried to stop the cross. And so on the occasion when Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over By wicked men, false witnesses will testify against him. He'll be put to death, but on the third day he'll rise again. Peter looks at him and he says, Lord, these things will never happen to you. Remember the words of Jesus? Get thee behind me, Satan. Because Satan is inspiring this attack on the righteous seed, on God's champion. And Jesus sets his face as a flint, puts up with all that goes on in the garden of Gethsemane and doesn't surrender to the forces of darkness but lays down his life on the cross and in the cross he made a public spectacle of pre-
principalities and powers, triumphing over them. In the cross, he crushed the head of Satan. John expresses it in this way. For this reason was the Son of God revealed, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. And in the cross, Christ destroyed the works of Satan. And he made it possible for all that God wanted to do in redemption in our lives to make us into the image and likeness of Christ, he made it all possible. And I rehearsed that with you this morning to remind you of what you know from the Scriptures. To say this to you. When Satan heard firsthand what God's purpose was from the mouth of God. All of his evil efforts, all of his conspiring with kings, with governments, with family conflicts, all his incitement to hatred and bloodshed, all of his inciting men to grasp for power, all failed to stop the purpose of God. Satan isn't able to stop the purpose of God. And what I wanted to say to you this morning very simply is this. If when Satan knows firsthand what the purpose of God is, he's not able to stop it. I want to say to you this morning, Satan is not able to stop the purpose of God in your life. I'm not even sure he knows it. But it wouldn't make any difference if he did. Because Satan doesn't have the power, the capacity... Working with the greatest superpowers, with the best armies, with the finest soldiers, with the most wicked kings and people in the earth. He couldn't stop the purpose of God. That's what your scripture attests to. That's the record of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation. Satan isn't able to stop the purpose of God. And I wanted to say to you again this morning, he's not able to stop the purpose of God in your life. You say, but I know that there was great purpose there. I'm not sure about my life. So let me remind you of this verse. It's Ephesians 1 and it's verse 11. And it says about you, in him, you were also chosen. Having been predestined. According to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Let me say that to you again. In him, you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. Whose plan? The plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Apparently, God thinks he's God this morning. 
God thinks he's working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And there might be all sorts of people trying to do all sorts of things in your life. But God thinks he chose you having predestined you according to a plan, his plan. His plan to work out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Does God have purpose for your life? Apparently his incredible purpose for your life. And he's committed to doing it. So Paul says it to the Philippians like this in Philippians 2 and verse 13. He says, it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Isn't that amazing? God is at work in Stevie Kelly to will and to act according to his good purpose. God's doing his will in our lives. That's why Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God's working out his purpose in your life. And Satan can't stop the purpose of God. And sometimes it's painful, the circumstances we go through. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it's confusing. And God's still working out the purpose of his will. He's working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The second thing that I want to say to you, I'm going to finish honestly. (laughs) But the second thing that I want to say to you is, Not only can God, Satan, not stop the purpose of God in your life. Satan can't stop the purpose of God in your family. It's one of the greatest lies he tells us. Satan taunts us about our families. He taunts us about our children. He leads us to believe that somehow or other... He's in control. He's got a hold that God will never break through. And God thinks he's working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Well, what I know from the record of Scripture is God always wins. The whole of the Scriptures testify to me that God always overcomes. There is nothing that Satan does that will prevail against the eternal purpose of God. What God has determined he's going to do in your family, he's going to do. And every time you bend your knee to pray for them, some of you hear a mocking voice in your ear telling you it'll never happen. You're wasting your time. There's no point in praying. And sometimes you look at the situation and it seems worse now than ever it's been. Listen, Satan isn't able to stop the purpose of God in your family. God is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Satan isn't able to stop the purpose of God in this church. He hasn't got the capacity. Because Jesus came to crush the head of Satan 
and to fulfill the will of the Father and to build his church. The final thing I want to say to you, I know a whole lot of you. I don't know some of you. But if you're fighting with God this morning, could I urge you to stop? Because you really aren't big enough to win. So in closing this morning, if I could just say to you, please, if you're fighting against God, please, today, surrender to his will. He might be asking you to do something you don't want to do. You'd rather not do. It may be you're sitting here and he's still asking you to surrender your life to him. And you know you should, but you're fighting against it. You're not big enough to take him on and win. Please surrender to his will. Satan isn't able to stop the purpose of God. And I pray that you'll remember that whatever's happening in your lives, because your king reigns sovereign over all. We've sung it already. I'd love to sing it again. God bless you. Amen.